Morning, everybody. Great to see you. My name is Alan. Welcome to those of you who are online. Have you ever driven to church on a Sunday morning in, let's say, hypothetically, in uh, an old Volkswagen, and then it breaks down on the way to church, and then you don't have a way to get there, and then you wait for a little bit, and then a police officer drives by, uh, uh, you know, wondering what you're doing in an old Volkswagen, and then comes over to help you and then, and then pushes the back of your car so that you can get it started again and, and get to church. Has that ever happened to anyone here? Because it happened to me recently. Uh, anyway, so uh, as a result of that, I'm truly very thankful that I'm here. Very thankful to be here with you today and excited because uh, we are starting a new series. We're going to start a new series called What's in a Name? Now, I'm confident that that most, if not all of you here, you understand that, that there was a little boy who was born in a manger that looked maybe something like that, or we all kind of picture it to look something like that, to a young couple, and he was given the name Jesus. And so you can imagine he has a little sticker on there. It says, says, it's a boy. It's a boy. Congratulations. You can celebrate. It's a boy, and his name is Jesus. But there are other names for this Jesus that we worship and that we learn about and we love so much. There are other names for this Jesus. And in this series, we want to take a look at the meaning behind some of these other names. If you do not yet have a journal, I want to remind you that they are available in the lobby. You can purchase them at the, the white marble desk there. We are in week five of an 18-week journey, so there's plenty of time to engage with the journal. The benefit of the journal is that it offers a, a short daily devotional for you to have a connection with from Sunday to Sunday in terms of what we're talking about, what's going on, what we are learning together as a community. And so the journal allows you to extend whatever's happening on Sunday to have a daily experience with that. If you do have your journal, I invite you to turn to the beginning. I see you're already there. Good for you. If you would uh, turn to page 39, which is the beginning of week five where we are today. The beginning of this series, What's in a Name? And in that paragraph that sets up this message that really sets up the whole series, I wrote this, the very first sentence. In this series, we're looking at some of the names of Jesus that have roots in the first half of the Old Testament story. The, the, the Bible that we that is the, the, the focus of how we learn about how, how much God loves us. It is, it is the way that God has provided for us his story so that we can learn from that and grow from that. This is not what we worship, but this gives us information about the one that we do worship. And this Bible is divided up into two big sections. The first and much larger section is what we refer to as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And it's the story of God's relationship with his people before Jesus came into the picture, before Jesus came to earth and was in the form of a, of a baby in this kind of setting here. That's the Old Testament of the Old Covenant. The second section is the smaller section of the Bible, and it's what we refer to as the New Testament or the New Covenant. And it is the story of Jesus so what we're doing in this series is we are looking at names in the New Testament, names of Jesus that have their root, have their story deeply rooted in the Old Testament. 
For example, what we're looking at today is the phrase, Lamb of God. And one of the places where we find that is in John chapter 1, verse 29. John is the first book in the New, is is one of the, the Gospels in the New Testament. One of the first few books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And uh, John chapter 1, uh, John writes, the next day John, now I just want to pause here because there are two Johns. It's a double John story. There's John, who's the writer of this book, who was one of the disciples, and he here is talking about a different John, John the Baptist. So just like in your third grade where there were multiple Johns in your class, it's this, there's, there's always been lots of Johns. It's just, it's just plenty of Johns for thousands of years. So back then, there were two Johns in this story. John the writer is saying, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist refers to Jesus, points to Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, that's kind of like saying Senator Palpatine is Darth Sidious. It's kind of like saying that. Because if you know the story... If you know what I just said, then you're going, well, yeah, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal in the story. If you don't know the story, then you're just saying, okay, who is this you're talking about? So which which should I put in my contact info if if I want to contact this sidious person? Who do I contact? So if you don't know the story, you don't know what, what the significance of that phrase is. It's the same thing with saying Jesus is the Lamb of God. If you know the story, if you know where Lamb of God comes as a part of the Old Testament journey, then you go, wow, that's a big deal. If you don't, then Jesus kind of sounds like a a cute pet of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which he is not a cute pet of God. So we want to dig into that, explore that a little bit. And as we do that, as we head into that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, once again, I'm uh, thankful to learn together with this community. We want to connect with you. And Father, as we look at this story, as we celebrate your son, as we celebrate baptisms here today, um, I pray that you would engage, you would help us engage both our head and our heart, that our heads would be open to learning something, to perhaps putting some pieces together, and our hearts would be open to your presence, your power, and that we would be able to make some connections that would actually have an impact on the way we live. Help us to make a memory here today. Help those who are being baptized to have this day imprinted on them as a memory with you. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we're looking at the name of Jesus as Lamb of God. And this is rooted in the ancient concept of sacrifice. This is something that is is definitely a part of the Old Testament journey, but it's a part of, of many, many, most ancient civilizations around the world. The idea of of some kind of sacrifice, that there is some food that is offered or an animal or even humans that are offered to appease or please a god or gods. It It is a very common experience throughout the history of humanity, this idea of a uh, of a sacrifice. Now, for us here in civilized Phoenix, 
this just seems ridiculous. I mean, the whole concept of, of sacrificing, of killing a person, killing an animal and letting the blood be shed, which is, which is a part of other civilizations, and we even find it as a part of the New Testament story, it just feels, it sounds ridiculous. It's a difficult thing for us to connect with, but it very much is a part of the Old Testament story. As ridiculous as it sounds to us, it's a part of the Old Testament story. And so it is important for us to dig into that and say, where was that coming from? What what does it mean that Jesus is referred to as the sacrificial lamb, as the lamb of God? One of the most disturbing stories in the Old Testament is one I want to look at today. It's the story of Abraham, who is referred to as the father of the Jewish nation. It all started with Abraham. And it's the very beginning of the story where Abraham was asked to climb Mount Moriah, climb a mountain with his son, and sacrifice his son at the top of the mountain because God had asked him to do it. That story is found in the Bible. It's a story that I don't like. It's a story that most of us don't like. It is a disturbing story. Some time ago, I actually found a a page in a children's coloring book to help them understand the Bible. And this was the picture in the children's coloring book. Okay, so if if you were new to this whole church thing and you dropped your five-year-old into our children's ministry and they came back and said, Mommy, Daddy, look what I did. And they had a beautiful scribbled version of this picture. You would not come back. Or you would come back and you would bring law enforcement with you because there's something very admittedly disturbing about this story. Again, I don't like this story. Most of us don't like this story. It's such an, an odd thing. I would never want my kid to be, you know, coloring this picture, but it's in there. And it's found in Genesis chapter 2. So if you're willing and courageous enough with me, let's jump into this story. Genesis chapter 2. I want to start by reading verse 2 of that chapter. Genesis 22, verse 2. God said to Abraham, Take your son your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, you got to understand, as we enter into this story, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, he is surrounded by other cultures and other nations who make sacrifices of humans, sometimes babies, to the gods. This was part of the culture. He was surrounded by that. So here we have Abraham at the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 2, the beginning of the story. He did not know that his God, the one and only God, the creator God, not one that was fabricated by any human being, the creator God does not ask for human sacrifices. He doesn't know that. There's just, this is the word that he has been given. This is what he's been asked to do. He is faithful. And Abraham just says, I hate this, but, but I'm, going to, I'm going to do what I'm told. I am faithful. I will move forward. So he takes two donkeys with him that have two servants on them. And he takes his son and he takes a pile of wood and he starts climbing Mount Moriah. Move to verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. There were many things that he brought up to 
this mountain. And so that's why this is referred to as the Mariah Carey. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I just, I just have to have a break in this awful story, okay? I understand it's an awful story. I just want to take a breather in it, all right? I know it's not helpful, but you, you, you didn't come here from, you know, to, for me to always be helpful. Okay, so continuing in verse 6, as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. This is, this, this is, this is so um, painful for uh, Abraham to be doing this. He, his, the backstory here is that, uh, is that he has promised that he would be the father of many nations. And, and so he's getting old in age. He's, he's, he's in his 90s and, and, and he still does not even have a child. And so God then blesses him and his wife with a child. Isaac is a miracle child. And then it's that miracle child, the only possible way that there would be a promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And it's that very child that, that Abraham is to carry up to the mountain and sacrifice up there. It is a horrific, awful, awful story. This is the boy that Abraham was so thankful for and he raised and he loved and he played with and he cared for. Verse 10, he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. How could he not say, here I am, without tears pouring down his face here in this moment? Here, what, what, what do you want from me? What else do you want from me? I mean, it's just a ridiculous setting. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. This story sounds, feels ridiculous. Why would God, if God never wanted a human sacrifice, there's no human sacrifice other than the sacrifice of his son, which is the story we'll, we'll get to. But if God did not want, why would he even test Abraham in this way? It is so painful. And even if you set aside the, 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 the sacrifice of his own son, why does, why does God even want the ram to be slaughtered? Why does God want a lamb or a bull or a, or a bird or some other uh, animal to be sacrificed. The whole thing just is just so hard for us to understand, so far, hard for us to connect with. But the sacrifice concept is the whole idea of transferring blame. And this is what we need to understand in terms of the Old Testament journey and how this rolls into our understanding of Jesus as the Lamb of God. It is the transfer of blame. It's the whole idea from the, an ancient part of the story to say, to say, to say, we're going to take all of your mistakes, all of your errors, and we are going to, to transfer them. 
We're going to take them from you, and we're going to transfer them onto this animal. It's the transfer of blame from a human to an animal. That's the concept of sacrifice. Whether we like it or not, that's, that's what it is. That's what the idea is, is to say we're going to take your mistakes, the ways that you have messed up and hurt people, we're going to take that, and we're going to take the mistakes of your family that you care about so much, and we're going to take the mistakes of the community, we're going to take all of those mistakes, and we're going to put them onto an animal we're, so, that, so that the animal will die. The animal will have to shed blood. The animal will have to die so that you do not have to. It's, it's the transferring of blame from a human to an animal. And the more innocent the animal, the better the transfer of blame. And that's why there's a, a, an ongoing request throughout the Old Testament that the animal be without defect, without blemish. That it would be a spotless animal. And so John the Baptist used the word lamb, and a lamb was a regular animal to be sacrificed. A lamb was a, was a young animal. It was a baby sheep or a baby goat because that's that young animal that is the most innocent of the animals. Now, so much of this is so hard to understand, so difficult to understand, but that last part about the innocence of a young animal, that part I actually can't understand because I have a dog. And a number of years ago, when we first got that dog, the dog is now 11. When we first got the, the dog, she looked like this. And so this is our eight-week-old puppy, and there is just perfect innocence with this little thing. And she just shook, and she was, you know, perfectly innocent as a puppy. But then she got older, and she would do things like this, and the innocence was, was gone. I mean, she's trying to look innocent. What, me? Oh, I'm not sure who did this. But we all know who did it. She's a sinful, sinful animal. And so I understand this whole deal. But the whole concept of sacrifice is that, is that, an, is that the, the, the mistakes, the sins of a human is transferred onto an animal. And the more innocent the animal, the, the, the greater, the more powerful that transfer is. It is the transfer of blame from a person to an animal. We, we might use the, the, word, the word scapegoat. You know, we're familiar with this concept of a scapegoat. We want to identify someone who is a scapegoat in a particular situation. You may or may not be aware that that word, that, that phrase, actually comes from the Bible. It, it, it originated in the Bible. We can find it in the book of Leviticus. The Old Testament starts with Genesis, then Exodus, then the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 16, it's written in verse 8, he, the priest, is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. That's the first time we see this, this word, this concept. It's where it's introduced to humanity. Jump to verse 21. We find out what happens with the scapegoat. The priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it. This is the scapegoat. Confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. This, this is the idea. This idea of a scapegoat is where blame is transferred from a human to an animal, and either the animal sheds blood and is killed, or in the, scape of the sca in the sake of the scapegoat, it is sent off into the wilderness. It is the sins put onto the animal and then transferred over. That's what it is, 
But, it, but it's difficult for us to kind of embrace the idea of sacrifice, the idea of transferring blame is just something that sounds ridiculous to us. It is ridiculous in our culture. Or is it? I mean, the slaughtering of animals, and you know, in that way, that, that doesn't make any sense to us. But what do we do when something goes wrong? When something goes wrong in our own lives, in our own culture, we, we, what we do is we say, who's responsible for this? I've got to find out. Because so, somebody needs to pay. I, I want to find out who is responsible, and then we are going to put the blame on that person or on that group of people. Something bad happens at work. A major client is lost. Significant revenue is lost. Some big mistake, some huge mistake happens. And so people then say, who's responsible for this? Someone needs to pay. Somebody's head is going to roll. i got to know what's going on. Somebody's going to get fired, whatever the whole thing is. There's a car accident. Have you ever been in a car accident? And if so, was, was there a desire to find out who was at fault? Of course there was. Rarely do we get out of a car at a car accident and go, man, I know I didn't make any mistakes, and you sure seem flawless in the way you were handling your vehicle. What happened? What is the, you know, supernatural circumstances? No, that's not what we do. We get out and we point blank. You're responsible. No, she was responsible. The ball came bouncing across, whatever the thing might be. And the police officers come and they come to help out. What's the details? And they draw their diagram and they try to figure out what, what's the story, what happened. And the insurance company gets involved. They surely want to know who's responsible because the whole deal is we want to know who's responsible. It's human nature. When there's chaos, when there's a problem, we want to know who's at fault. We want to know who's responsible. It is not natural for us to say, ah, forget about it. Don't worry about it. How many insurance companies are going to say, don't worry about it. We'll cover it. You seem like nice people. We have to find out who's responsible. Nor is it natural for us to say, hey, something's going on in our culture. So let's equally divide the blame. Let's just equally divide it. Then none of us get to look down on anyone else because we're all sharing the responsibility here. That's not going to happen. Sometimes somebody will take responsibility on themselves, and that's a sacrificial thing to do. But generally, for the most part, we want to find out who is responsible, who is to blame, who can we point our finger at, who will be the sacrificial lamb in this scenario, who will be the scapegoat for us. So you look at what might be the, what you think is the greatest problem in our culture right now. Just look at what, whatever you might think that problem might be. We have a centuries-old issue of racism here in this country that we love so much. And so at different times, what we, we say, we've got to find out who, who is to blame. Who can we transfer the blame to? Is it one particular group of people? Is it an event? Is it, is it a generation? Is it one particular story? Is it, it, what, who, how can we transfer the blame to somebody? Who can we transfer the blame to? We can get frustrated with politics and think the whole thing is just just drifted so far from what it was intended to be and, and our politics is in a, is in a system now where, where so little is getting done and so it's natural for us to say, well, then who is to blame? Which party can we point our fingers to? Which side of this, of this issue? Which group of people? Which policy can we lean on and say, that's to blame. It's that person. It's that group of people. Or maybe you look at the, the deterioration of the, the, the family unit in, in the country, just the, the value of, of, of perhaps 
your understanding of how God set up the family unit to be as the core center of, of a strong society. And with that deteriorating, you know, by, by many aspects, then we say, well, who's to blame? Who can I point my finger at? What, what decision can I point my finger at and say, that's where it all happened? What group of people, what person, what section of the country, what decision by the Supreme Court can I look at and say, that's, the, that's where it all went wrong? It's just natural for us to point and just to say, here's a problem, and I want to put blame onto something else. Because of that, maybe it's not all that foreign for us to look into the concept of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Maybe it's not all that ridiculous. Maybe we do it, we just don't do it in the same way. And maybe there still is a need here in our culture, in your life, for a sacrificial lamb, for some focus of this story. Maybe it's not as ridiculous as we seem, as it seems. John the Baptist, this crazy guy, he, was, he just he looked crazy and he sounded crazy and he, he was saying crazy things and people didn't know if he was a nutcase or if he was a prophet or what was going on. But he pointed, pointed to Jesus, not as a baby, but he pointed to Jesus as a man who was approaching him on the Jordan River and he just said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's this story of Jesus 2,000 years ago that is actually kind of in the middle between the story of Abraham and the story we find ourselves in right now. And right in, the, in between there, John the Baptist says, Jesus is the Lamb of God. If you go way back to the Abraham story, Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son up on that mountain. Thankfully. And his son's name was Isaac, and Isaac grew up and had children who had children. And they had they became the twelve tribes of Israel. They became a grand nation. Abraham, you know, the, the fulfillment of the promise through Abraham happened, and a whole nation of Israel began with family, more and more children and children and families. That family needed to survive, and so they needed to leave the region where uh, Mount Moriah was, and they actually had to go into Egypt in order to get food so they could survive. Unfortunately, they stayed there for many generations, and they got caught in slavery. And then it was quite some time later where, uh, where they were freed from slavery out of Egypt. That's actually the story we're going to look at next Sunday. You don't want to miss that. So they come out of Egypt, and then they wander in the desert for 40 years, and they're wandering all over the place in the desert. And they finally get back to the land that was promised to them, referred to as the promised land. And they finally go into this land, the 12 tribes, and they separate out, and they take a large portion of this land in the Middle East, and then eventually David kills Goliath and becomes the king of this nation. And David then takes the city of Jerusalem. It, it was and is still referred to as the city of David. It becomes the capital of the nation of Israel. But things don't go well after many generations. And they actually get kicked out of Jerusalem. And they end up going way east into Babylon for, for uh, multiple generations. And they stumble their way back into Jerusalem which sets the stage for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. But he grew up in Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem in significant ways. But as he grew older and as that's the story of Jesus grew, Jesus eventually came back closer to Jerusalem, which is where he was tried and convicted 
to, to die on a cross, and he carries his own cross up a, up a hill, and, and the cross gets put in the ground next to two other uh, uh, criminals, and Jesus dies up on that cross, the crucifixion story. Do you know how far away the place where we, we understand Jesus to have died on that cross is from the place where Abraham brought his son to die up on a mountain. This story that took place thousands of years later, that traveled thousands of miles with all people traveling all over the place. Do you know how far away those two spots are on this planet? About 500 yards. It's the same spot. With all of that traveling, all that big old story, it was the same spot. Thousands of years ago, Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son, but it was a foreshadowing of a day when God would actually sacrifice his one and only begotten son. It, this, this story was a foreshadowing, and it's so ridiculous and it's hard to read, but it is the foundation of a story where God loved us so much that he would provide his own son to be the Lamb of God because somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay, always. Blame can't just evaporate. Blame has to land somewhere. It, 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 we, we know this from the way we interact with one another. Blame has to go somewhere. We have to find some place to put the blame. It has to go somewhere. So either Jesus is not the Lamb of God, and then that blame has to go on me. That has to go on us, and I have to carry that blame and try to figure that out for the rest of my life, or I have to put it on somebody else. I don't want it. I'm going to put it on my spouse. It's her fault. It's his fault. I'm going to put it on people at work. They're the ones who did this to me. It's, it's their fault. I'm going to put it on my parents. That's the easy one. It's always the way I grew up. It's always my parents' fault. i got to put the blame somewhere. If Jesus is not the Lamb of God, the blame has to go somewhere. Or John the Baptist was right when he said, Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means all of the sin of the world gets put on this sacrificial lamb so that you and I don't have to carry it with us, so that you don't have, and I don't have to die on any altar, on any cross, because Jesus did that for us. For those of you being baptized, we're going to do that in just a couple minutes, and we're very excited to celebrate that with you. But I just want to ask you, if you're being baptized right now, please don't think about the baptism details. Please don't think about, okay, oh, it's, it's about to happen. Where's my towel? Uh, what, what, uh, did I wear the right thing? Do I have the right thing on? Am I going to be okay? Okay, is that how, what's this going to look like? Am I going to get water up my nose when I come up? Is it, don't worry about, don't think about that. Like, I probably shouldn't have said that because now you're thinking about the water that's going to go up your nose. You're breathing out right now as I'm talking. Please don't think about that. Don't think about the details. As you prepare for baptism, I invite you and encourage you, challenge you to think about Jesus as the Lamb of God. What that means is that when, you, when you're, when you're bap being baptized before all of us, you're saying yes to Jesus. You're saying yes. Among many other things, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is a lot of things, but right now, 
What I want you to focus on is Jesus is the Lamb of God. What that means is that every one of your mistakes, every one of the the mistakes you've made in your life get transferred from you to Jesus, the sacrificial Lamb. Every mistake, every dark secret, every lie, every word that you wish you hadn't said, it was foolish for you to have said it. Every person that you hurt, every time you hurt yourself, every one of those things gets transferred from you to Jesus. Now, what I don't want you to feel is, is, wow, that's a whole lot of guilt. The whole idea is not guilt. The whole idea is appreciation, that you get to have the, the freedom that all of this is transferred from you to Jesus who did that for you freely. He offered himself up for you. The idea is not, is not that we would experience sadness from that. Oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. The whole idea is that we would tr- experience tremendous joy from that. That's why this is a part of the joy deal. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and as a result, we don't have to die on that cross, and we can experience the joy for the rest of our lives because God loves us that much. That's why when you come up out of the water, we're going to cheer. Because you were saying before about all of us, you're, all of this stuff is transferred from you onto Jesus who is the Lamb of God. So that we can say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for being the Lamb of God and taking away your sin and my sin and their sin. For taking away the sin of the world. That's why we can view Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's why John the Baptist pointed and said, wow. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that your story is both simple and deeply complex. It is simple because you, in that you just, you created us and you love us and you want us to love you back. But then there are so many levels of complexity to it in terms of understanding the words and the depths of all of this. God, that we can embrace you in both the simple way and in any complex way that you invite us into. And today, as I, as I prayed when we got started, I pray that there would be a, uh, not just a head connection, but there would be a heart connection for those who are being baptized for all of us here. There would be a heart connection as we celebrate these baptisms, as we celebrate who you are and your goodness as as the Lamb of God. I pray for those being baptized, God, that this would be a memory, that this day would never be forgotten as a day where they say before all of us, they belong to Jesus for the rest of their lives. They choose to follow you. We celebrate that in the name of your Son, in the name of the Lamb of God. Amen.